0: This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. We have enemies within our country. I think it's a
1: combination of demonology and psyop.
2: The citizens are going to rise up and become deputized.
3: I have always heard President Trump. I, I like the way he talked. He reminded me of most men.
1: Joe Biden last night in the debate, he's it's like he's not even
3: a
0: human being. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represented extremism.
2: Can you imagine
0: repatriating all the black Americans that Pat just spoke about to Africa? Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen.
2: This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, or even out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane defined God. And look. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'll be your host, Daniel White Hodge. All right, all right. Here we are, fam, back again. Another week, another time. Um, Yeah, well, if you're getting this uh, last, well, the last episode... Uh, I know it was a few days delayed, and I apologize for that. If you're listening to this in real time, um, yeah, I had some problems with my uh, the host, the host uh, that I that I you know have my server with and and domain with. Um, they're not that great. <laughs> I'm actually in the process of trying to switch over to another host, um, and they have a lot of downtimes. And literally, I could not even access my cPanel um, or anything on the back end. For those of you, you know, who are not familiar with um, a lot of the computer area stuff, it is basically how you access the website, not from the front end, right? like not what people see, right? It's like being able to go in and edit the website. But even behind that, behind the WordPress, right, you have the the nitty-gritty the nuts and bolts and so i couldn't even get in there and it was down for like 48 hours and i couldn't do anything so fyi if that happens again and i hope it does not and hopefully i'm able to get everything transferred over to another server um we do have a soundcloud site um there's a whole everything that's on our regular um rss platform is on soundcloud so highly recommend going over to soundcloud and uh you know checking it out everything's there i also have that's also where i've had uh got some special issues some extended editions um the interviews that i had for episode one of the new season here uh with kathy kong and um, Janelle Austin, those are there as well. Um, so yeah, go go take a look, go check it out. There's some there's some good stuff there and promo material and all that good stuff if you're just a all-around fan person, uh, which I hope you are, you know what I'm saying? I hope you are. Otherwise, my goodness, um, golly, where do we begin? Uh, I guess I should mention, I know, what was it there? There was been Talk and I guess I'm kind of late to the show. Uh, in regards to talk about the Asbury revival, right? (laughs) Um, which, uh, you know, I mean, I may dedicate a show to talking more about that. I don't know. I don't get that. You know, I don't want to, you know, I'm not putting down anybody, you know, you, you is who you are and what happens with you is what happens with you. But I don't know when I saw the pictures and the videos and stuff, man, it just looked like just white, (laughs) it just looked white and it didn't even look uh like you know when i think about revival i'm not thinking about the same old same old it just looks like the same old same old uh, my boy <laughs> this is Scott Akamoto, uh, who runs an amazing uh, a podcast. I've had him on the show, uh, and I've, he's he's been on my show as well. Um, Chapel probation. If man, if you're not y'all not familiar with that, you need to go hear that. I mean, he and I were at Azusa Pacific uh, or APU for a while, and uh, I met him there. And man, just the stories he's got from that particular school and from others—amazing stuff. And he was just like, man, he said, those are just the people, you know, trying to make up their chapel <laughs> credits, right? Cause you know, God awful. Uh, some of these Christian colleges, you know, make their students go to chapel. Uh, it's one of the things I can say about my institution that they don't do. One of the very few things that they get right. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't get excited about stuff like that. Um, I know for some people, it was a big thing. I kept seeing all these posts and all these posts. Um, and I was just like, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> so what? People are going, like, to church. I mean, what what is the revival outcome? Like, what is... If we're thinking about revival, are there any policy changes? Um, are people getting out of cages at the border? Um, is the war in Ukraine ending? Uh, are, are, are people in the, on the continent of Africa, you know, being liberated and then giving money? Are we getting reparation? I mean, what's the action from this revival other than an Instagram post, other than saying, oh my gosh, this was spectacular and wonderful. Uh, why don't we all just hang out? You know what I'm saying? Um, I just don't see it. I, I I just don't see it. And again, I'm not trying to knock. I mean, if y'all had some amazing revival time out there, I just don't get it. It just looked white. It looked evangelical. Um, and that's just the same old, same old for me. Now, if we going in there and y'all showing me shit that's floating and, and, uh, you know, you got the thing that looks like, if y'all seen Indiana Jones, uh, the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, like you start seeing some stuff, you know, you got, if you found the Ark of the Covenant, okay, I want to show up for that. All right. I want to go, you know, go see it. Let's, let's carbon date it to begin with. Uh, and then, uh, let's, you know, like you start seeing some stuff like that, then I'm like, all right. Maybe you got yourself a little revival, right? Um, Otherwise, it's just same old, same old. So I don't really have a lot, you know, to say about it other than it just looks white and white people doing their thing. So more power to you. (laughs) I don't know where where to even put it with that. Um... But, uh, you know, I know, that, you know, this, that people are searching, right? We're all searching. Um, I mean, I, and I yeah, I openly admit that I know I'm searching. I know I'm, you know, continuing to try to figure out, you know, which way is up in this whole thing of religion and theology. Um, you know, it's never easy, right? It's never easy. I think religion has, you know, placated so many of us to feel comfortable with the knowledge or at least the assumptive knowledge that we know something right that we have the truth that we um are carrying with us a particular knowledge a truth a a a pattern or a pathway right to the afterlife um and the reality of it is is that none of us know (laughs) <laughs> snow. Uh, I've said it before and I say it again uh, Nobody knows what happens after you die um, We have thoughts of what happens We have people who've been brain dead and deprived of oxygen for several minutes Who think they may have seen some stuff And hey, you be wherever, man Maybe you hear me on this podcast, you know, in, in future seasons Where I was deprived of oxygen and I saw some crazy shit I don't know But the reality of it is is that no one knows now, I want to talk to the cat who's been dead for a week maybe not even a week. Give me 3 days. Give me 3 days. Give me three. give me 2 days to dead pop back up in the morgue and was like, "Whoa, this is what happened. That's the cat I want to talk with." Okay? Um yeah, man. So I think, you know, so much of it is just chilling the f out in regards to what we think dogmatic practices are like if you want to practice that like i said it the other day in my class like we're talking about gender and gender communication um and i was like look you know if you practice traditional roles in your partnership with your partner so be it do it right just don't assume that that is the correct and only way to do things, right? And that's for me, I mean, it goes back to write a football analogy. I know, I know NFL is problematic, but I'm gonna use the football analogy anyway. Um, It's like watching a football game and you got cats that are right on the sideline. You got cats who are playing the game. You got uh, folks who are sitting right on the 50 yard line. You got folks who are sitting up a few rows. You got folks in the nosebleed section. And if we can all get together, and talk about those things and say, look, this is what I saw from my perspective. Hey, I was sitting so far up. I saw the whole field. I saw the end zone. I saw the people holding the flags. This is what happened, right? Well, and you got another person who says, hey, but you know, check it out. I was right on the field and this is what I saw from this perspective. We could just do that, (laughs) right? I know that's idealistic when it comes to religion because nowhere in the history, right? Have we looked it up and just been like, oh, well, this is just my perspective. I'll, uh, you know, I'll respect your perspective and you respect mine. <laughs> right? It turns into um, a shit show. It turns into, um, you know, people killing each other, people blowing, you know, folks up. And, um,. Yeah, that's just where we find ourselves right here in the U.S. When you start thinking about the laws being passed and switch uh, switched over, um, I am not excited for the election coming up here. Uh, again, if you listen to this in real time, we're in 2023. Uh, I'm not looking to the forward to the elections next year. Um, and uh, you know, if people like DeSantos and or really a lot of any of these other GOP folks uh, get in, uh, we can begin to see a lot of changes uh, just in how we you know how we do things. Think about the amount of Anti-trans laws that are happening right now in this country. Think about places like what is it Kentucky, Tennessee, banned uh, drag shows. (laughs) Really, that's the best you've got. (laughs) That's the that is that that is what you believe these these things are are that 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 is what you believe that is the most important, and that a drag show is hurting society that much i it, it just it boggles the mind so again going back to revival i don't see anything changing <laughs> it's the same old same old day in day out um so we'll see, you know, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. As I always say, we will see. Um, this week, though, I'm excited to bring on um, Jenny Booth Potter. Um, I, I met her through the publisher, but as I got to know her, I was like, "Wow, she's a uh, she's got some interesting things going on." And and you know, as in and, and like what I like to do on this show is, you know, particularly white folks, white women. Um, who I feel are trying to make a difference about just anything related to race. um, I appreciate uh, Jenny's perspective. She has a new book out um, and it is, it's great. I actually had a chance to read it ahead of time and uh, you know, she's got some great endorsements and um, she is, uh, she says there's five things you know about me. She says, I'm obsessed with the Enneagram. Uh, she's a one, uh, except for the clean house part, which is great, I'm a four, so that works, right? Uh, she lives outside of Chicago with her husband, John. I think I know John. Um, her favorite book uh, as a child was uh, was The Giver. Um, she doesn't want to watch the movie because uh, she can see it so clearly in her own imagination and doesn't want to ruin what she's got up there. Uh, she said she used to work uh, as a producer of a mega church and now she's the chief content officer for herself media. Um, she also had about three internships during college. While well, she was studying psychology and writing, um, she she just wrote a book on anti-racism and really her journey over the last twenty years. Um, and that's the that was the part I wanted to highlight because I was like, I just I think this is the type of stuff that you know I wanna um I, I wanna promote. I wanna be out there and whatnot. So we were actually able to have a great conversation. The book is doing nothing is no longer an option um and you can i will put the links to her the, her book sales uh the book in general uh her website in the show notes always at whitehotchpodcast.com uh, and you can go check these out uh for yourself but again doing nothing is no longer an option a great read had a chance to sit down and talk with her the great Ginny booth potter here we go fam check it out Well, here we are with uh, Jenny Booth Potter talking about her book, Doing Nothing is No Longer an Option, One Woman's Journey into Everyday Anti-Racism. I got a lot of questions. This is a good book. Um, Before we even get going on that, I got to ask you the question I ask everybody. What has been happening from birth till now? What has made Jenny, the Booth, and the Potter?
3: Ooh, well, all those names for sure. So (laughs) I... I, you know, I tell a little bit of my origin story in the book, but I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. Um, I am the middle child of three and I have an older sister who is adopted and that was, uh, unbeknownst to me in real time, probably my, my first racialized experience was actually hearing the story of how my sister, um, the story of my sister's adoption and, the the way it was told in my family growing up was uh, my parents were blown away that there was a healthy white baby available for adoption. And there was always an emphasis on both those things, the healthy and the white. And it was never explained to me why that mattered so much. I was mm-hmm. kind of left on my own to figure that out or to, yeah, to kind of wrestle with it. And I didn't really because I was a product of the colorblind 1980s and, you know, the white evangelical (laughs) evangelical uh, church. And so it was mentioned in passing and then never, never touched again. Um, So that really was, I I was definitely raised in a somewhat like multicultural elementary school. And so I I was starting to have these like exposures to different cultures and different ethnicities, but no one was helping me understand anything about difference or, you know, anything about what our different experiences were like. Um, and, but I always, I, I, I from a young age, I always kind of recognized it and was curious about it. Yeah. Um, and so it asked questions along the way that kind of pushed further questioning, um, just because I don't think people around me had the language, or even felt their permission to be talking about this. You know, being a colorblind you're in the colorblind rhetoric. It's like, oh, if you see color, that means you're racist. And we don't want to be we we're nice midwestern christians. We don't right. want to, you know, we don't want to be racist.
1: <laughs> right. So, right.
3: Really I kind of went on like, "Oh, I don't I I feel like I'm seeing something but no one is helping me out with understanding. Um And then in college, I went to a school. Well, (laughs) I went to your school. I went to North Park University for my undergrad and and applied to go on this racial justice journey called Sankofa. that literally I I had been raised in the church. And I always heard these like dramatic testimonials of, you know, I once was blind, but now I see and I was always so jealous of those people with these like dramatic conversion stories. And my Sankofa experience, for those that aren't familiar with the trip, they take, usually it's like uh, as many people as you can fit on a bus. So it's usually about 40 people. And in my case, it was 20 Black students and 20 non-Black students. And you're all partnered up um, and really exposed to different elements of our country's history and really, really, really very forward with it being a racial lens that you're looking at this history and it was on that trip that i had one of those like oh my gosh i once Mm. was blind but now i see kind of moments where every all those curiosities and like questions and just the like this stuff like what's happening here right It, it immediately is how i saw the world and then I mean, that is not like any conversion story. That's not the end of the story, right? That's the beginning. So it really was um, that trip that changed the trajectory of my career of what I wanted to do. I started working for, I thought the next right thing when you care about racial justice is you go into the nonprofit world. So that's where I started working and then ended up at a mega church in the suburbs of Chicago where I worked there for almost a decade Um, in large part because I was, um, told that that was a, a really high value for that community right. and that church and right. so I I let co-led racial justice trainings there and you know staff diversity workshops and uh worked on the the main services and tried to make sure that the, the value of diversity was seen throughout um and and pretty much hit a wall where I started seeing Oh, this is as far as we want to go. So I left that job in 2020 and, uh, I now just wrote this book that just released recently. And then I am, uh, the chief content officer for a media company called herself media. And our whole objective is to really try to tell stories, uh, aimed at black women that center their dignity and their joy. And so I feel so grateful for the journey I've been on, um, And yeah, that's kind of me up to date. I am a mom of two young boys. I have an almost six year old. He's turned six in eight days. (laughs) And then I have um, an eight year old. And they have raising these two white boys has completely (laughs) elevated my urgency around racial justice because I am watching in real time the fight for not to be dramatic, but like their lives and yeah. their souls yeah. of who are they going to be, um, who are they going to pledge their allegiance to? Mm. And there are a lot of like really terrifying groups that want them as members. So, uh, so that just, it, it, yeah, it shifted, um, it expanded, right. Expanded kind of my work of this isn't just out there in my jobs and, you know, within like me and my husband and what we do in our community. But this is like really daily in our home um, and laying the groundwork that my kids have a strong foundation to pull from when these, when these messages and these groups start kind of coming after them. So I think that's everything out. I was I like, like it. four minutes. right? No, I no, I love it. 40, I love that's it. That's
2: like a minute per decade. <laughs> yeah. Well, well yes. <laughs> a minute per decade. That's actually pretty good. I, I'll keep that math around. Um, this is fascinating. And I always, I always love asking particularly, you know, white folks who, who write books on racial justice and better understanding like what, um, you know their journey has been, and yeah, I know Sankofa. I'm trying to. I was trying to place you, guy. I mean, I got to. Uh, I got to the old MP of you in 2011. Um, so I'm imagining. I think I missed you.
3: Yeah, I believe this trip was spring of 2004. It okay, was the yeah. spring of my junior year. I graduated 2005.
2: Okay. Yep. 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 So, um, but I do. I knew. I know Sankofa, and and I know you know what the kind of the premise of it is in 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 reality how would you say having worked in church and uh, ministry settings how how have you seen components of race components of um, well yeah components of race how have those been interacting in a space, right? That's been told to us over and over and over again that it shouldn't be, right? You think about Billy Graham, Mm -hmm. he didn't want to touch anything on, you know, civil rights because he was like, we just got to get people saved. And once they're saved, gospel of Jesus Christ will change their hearts and all these other things will end. Uh, Of course, we know that's a big pile of crap, but (laughs) nevertheless, um, how how are you witness to some of those things and and especially right the intersectionality of it being a woman being white married all that stuff i mean i don't know where you were at on the marriage timelining with kids but i'd be i'd be very curious to hear your your uh yeah your story on that
3: yeah i you know like i mentioned so i the church i've only worked for one church and that church one of the things that attracted me i was married when i started working there And one of the things that attracted me was it felt very, uh, it it did, it did not seem to only care about people's salvation. Like there was a clear desire of, well, if my neighbor is hungry, who cares if they're going to heaven? Like, I mean, not who cares, but like, let's probably let's like feed them and show them the love of Jesus that way. Like, let's, let's, um. Yeah. Let's not be so narrow in our thinking that it's all about the afterlife. Mm -hmm. So I joined very, uh, I I thought I was with my people. I thought I was with people that were like, this is ending work. This is not something that we like check off. Um, this is not something that we're doing just for optics like i really thought that this was an expression of the gospel was was moving away helping people understand that to be colorblind you're actually ignoring people's story and you're ignoring people's joy and pain right that that color is not um talking about race does not need to be a like traumatizing tear-inducing thing, nor should it only be kind of tip of the iceberg of just like celebration. And like, you know, yay, it's Black History Month. Um, So I thought we were just getting started. Like that's, I kind of felt like, okay, we're just priming the pump. And the years that I worked at this institution, I think, so I was there from 2011 to to 2020. Mm -hmm. And so that was for America, the time where I don't know how that we're paying attention at all could maintain like a colorblind rhetoric. Mm. So we were already kind of ahead of the curve in like 2011 of kind of like, like, no, like, you know, this is a value, like that has got, like, this is not, I mean, the verse or the, we can't, we didn't quote Billy Graham, but we were quoting the Martin Luther King jr. You know, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so that that became the goal of like we have to goal is to not be segregated. Um, so that was a very interesting time because you have you have the you know you have the murder of Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: and then you have the acquittal of George Zimmer, Zimmerman. Yeah. Um. And 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 both those things. And I, I talk about this in my book, because I think for a lot of white people in America, it really was Trayvon Martin's murder that kind of started them being like, oh, my gosh, like, what, wait, this isn't just, you know, oh, civil rights happened. And yay, now, you know, now we're all we're, you know, segregation laws have been overturned like now we're really you know obama was elected we're living this post racial fantasy i think trayvon martin for a lot of people was their first on ramp to oh my goodness like racism is still alive and and well yeah and for me being at the church i i was already racism was alive and well really for me being at this institution, watching them in real time, not respond to the Zimmerman verdict Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. really started poking at what are we actually doing here? And is this, is this going beyond optics? Because I had a moment and I tell the story in my book, but I had a moment, no one, no one was surprised that the verdict for George Zimmerman was coming. Like it, it was, you know, the trial was being aired. Like it was, yeah. we were prepared, yeah. right? We could we could be shocked by a murder of a 17 year old, but we were prepared. For, okay, the verdict is coming. And so there were a lot of people that I was working with at the church that were really asking and kind of begging for like, let's come up with a plan. We have to respond to this. And... We were just given, we were met with kind of excuse after excuse. And I really, I started going back to Dr. King's, I went to the letter from Birmingham jail and I went to his description of the white moderates Okay.
1: Okay. and
3: I really had this, I had this realization of white moderates might talk about color. Like they, you know, like they could be, they could have like a value of diversity. Yeah, But there's always going to be another value that wins out for them. Hmm. There's always going to be another city or people that is going to kind of come in and Trump whatever they feel about their passion or their vision for like a multicultural space. If you are operating as a white moderate. And so, so I, I was like, oh, it's not just like the Zimmerman verdict that I've received. I've received a verdict of whether or not the people I'm following are white moderates. Yeah. And that, that verdict is like, yeah, like, that, that is that is how this church is operating. And I think once I started viewing it through that lens, yeah, it gave me language to push back with. Okay. But it was uphill battle. And then one that I eventually was like, I feel like I am staring at a brick wall and I am running into it as fast as I can. And so I get like bloodied and bruised along with other people that are like that, that, that want this to move beyond just like a place for white moderates to be able to say, look, you know, look at this diversity. Um, but we all ended up like bloodied and bruised, but that brick wall wasn't moving at all. And so I I think there was a time where it was like, I can only be pushing for so long before I want to actually go start building something that's real. And that's not based on, you know, one of the things that MLK talked about so much was the timeline, according to a white moderate. There's like, there's, it's, it's all according, there's no real sense of urgency. It's exactly to what you were saying of like, Billy Graham's like, let's just like, anytime you hear like, let's just dot, dot, dot. It's like,
1: Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah.
3: Right. So, and I think there were a lot of, us, uh, there were, you know, I was working, um, like a diversity team with, uh, you know, I was in the minority as a white woman and a lot of us were fooled. Mm. It is, it is a really big, to, Especially in that time when it's like oh we should just be grateful that they're talking about it at all was almost how it started to wait a second like we've been saying the same thing and the urgent the time is now like this is yeah this is this is this is not something that we can defer um this is people's like lives this is people's humanity right you know and so uh, it was a journey though, because I, you want to believe in the institutions that you are a part of. Why else would you be part of them? And so it <laughs> yeah. it, it is, and I think there's also a level I was thinking, I am trusting these people because I believe they have been on this path longer than me. So maybe they have some wisdom about, yeah, maybe this, oh, maybe it would implode if we tried to push too hard, too fast, as opposed to saying this is a line for, for for white moderates that has been said over and over again yeah and it's going to continue unless we either leave or fight like god i i don't know I, and yeah so I, yeah i don't know i don't know like what the answer is for people that are still part of institutions like that i think you've, you figure out. I think it's important to figure out where you are at, like what is actually happening and like naming that truth so that you're not in the delusion that there is some lofty five-year plan. Yeah. Like I want to know your five-day plan. I want to know where were you five years ago that is, that is evolving. I want to see growth. Yeah. I don't want to see regurgitation of the same right. things and the same like I say this line in my book that I'm, I'm really suspicious of anything that takes off the pressure for racial justice. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think there is anytime you start seeing those types of things where it's, it is it's that like, well, as soon as, or let's just wait and like anything that, yep. like, yep. it's a red flag for me. And so, yeah, I learned a lot. So much of my learnings that I put in this book, like I wouldn't have this book without being part of that institution. Um, but it's also not original. Like it's not like yeah. that one church was an outlier and you know, all these other spaces are great. Like this is the cancer of white supremacy and how it manifests itself in different levels of institutions, whether that be government, church, education, yeah. you, you know, you name it.
2: This is, well, this is powerful. I mean, cause I think, and I want to get to the contemporary where we're at and I'd love to hear about, the impact of the 2016 election and, and obviously we were coming at least at the time of recording, we're coming up to a midterm election um here. I appreciate mm-hmm. what you were talking about here though on twenty in page twenty three, you were it's just what struck me and you were like, uh I forget who it was. Is this what I was given instructions on how to minimize on accidental overcharge. Katrina I think it was Katrina. Yeah, mm-hmm. Katrina and her brothers were given yeah. instructions on how to avoid being falsely accused or even killed. Um and you say, I think it was on the third or fourth paragraph. You said I started to pull out my rehearsed answer, but paused. Just from the last few hours, I realized how much I didn't know. Like I'd only in half the story. I only only in half the story, um, but without knowing how much I was missing. Um, I, I, I'm, that struck me because I feel like so oftentimes, especially right in church settings, um, it, there's always a rehearsed answer when it came mm-hmm. to. Um, race and ethnicity. Um, uh, you know, I, I recently had somebody, uh, reach out to me from Wheaton and was asking me to come do this workshop. And I was like, I don't think y'all know me, but let me just go ahead and ask this question. I'm just saying. What type of organization is this? How closely are y'all tied to, you know, Trump? Like I'm going in, like, I'm just like, you know, I looked up the the website and it was like the stuff on prison ministry. Of course, all the leaders are all white. And I was just like, how have y'all empowered folks from that, those communities Mm -hmm. that you're serving? And it was just kind of, again, just kind of just response, standard response answers about how we're just here to fulfill the gospel. And we're a ministry organization. Jesus how have you navigated some of those 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 conversations with other white folks where you're at where where you were and where you're at now does that make sense Say
3: like one more sentence
2: yeah yeah, so. yeah 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 no well i am I'm, I'm basically asking like how have you navigated some of those conversations with standardized responses mm. to the issues of fill in the blank right i mean it's it's almost like we've become desensitized to Black and brown bodies being shot on, on you know, somewhere mm. on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're no longer, it's no longer the shock and awe. Like, you know, Rodney King was... It it was a shock and awe to to the nation, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh my God, like mm-hmm. that happened. But now it's you can right now you can go put on some hashtag and it's gonna pull it up for you. Um. So mm-hmm. how how have you navigated some of those standardized responses from other white people in your environment? Does that make sense? Is that a little bit better? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, no, I um, uh huh. And not to just be like in my book, but in my book, please, (laughs) please, please.
2: Yes. No, let's keep putting people to it.
3: I do have a whole chapter called white noise. And I, because I think you're exactly right. And, and, and I think uh, there's all this language that people think is original, but after you're in these conversations enough time, you're like, (laughs) like I've, I've heard this before. And so a lot of those things are, um, it's a sin issue An issue is stuff that I hear. I hear, um, well, if they really wanted, you know, X, Y, Z, they would leave or that, you know, like, um, or if they were just compliant, like there's, there is, uh, such a, I know this is slightly different than the chapter that you read from, but I think it's, it's, there, why are you making me? Why are you making? Why are you bringing up slavery? Like, right. that's in the past, right. Or, I, you know, I wasn't there. I had, you know, I went, I had all these like Swedish kids that I did not, I was like, oh, I did not think that being a brunette would be like <laughs> <laughs> diversifying <laughs> my floor, but apparently it is. Um, so I had all these that I was meeting whose like grandparents like were born in Sweden, and so you know, they're like my grand, you know, they weren't even here. Like my ancestors weren't in America when slavery was happening. So all of those things are doing two things, right? They are trying to deflect any responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like I have nothing to do with this and maybe they're doing three things. They're trying to deflect responsibility from the person you're having a conversation with. If they're the white person, they're trying to place blame often on communities of color. Like as if like, oh, they like it this way, or they want or like if they wanted it different, they would just differently. Like it's they're making it worse. And then three, it's to shut the conversation down. Like they are not curious in this conversation. They are not looking for, yeah, let's talk about the ratio of I mean, like I, I let's talk about the fact that women survive childbirth but black women die three to four times more in labor like let's talk let's talk about the ratio of armed men getting shot and and killed versus armed people white men who have just gone on killing sprees and somehow make it to the drive-through on their way (laughs) to jail like yeah let's there's not there's no curiosity it is so, why I call it white noise is because white noise lulls you to sleep right mm-hmm. it's it's not yeah. it's not it's not provocative. It's not like, whoa, like I never thought of it that way. It is meant to quiet things down and to lull you back to sleep. And so I would in conversations with people, I think I think it's a I, I think it's really as a white person in conversations because i do really think um there are there are conversations that white people would never have will never have with a a color present yeah ever and so i think that's why i wrote this part of why i wrote this book is because white people like we could be like spies like we you know we are we get to go where other people do not and we get to hear conversations and be in rooms where decisions are being made, you know, I mean, you can, the ripples go so far beyond just like talk. Um, But I do think it it is often easiest to start building your muscle of just saying, Hey, is that what you really think? Or, Hey, would you mind? I have this article that I just read. Would you read this and then we can talk about it? Like, I think there is this um, assumption, you know, especially with like, yeah. Uh, people in anti-racist that that start seeing anti-racism as part of their vision for how they want to be in the world. I think immediately you're like, okay, so I have to just like cut ties with all my racist relatives. I have to like move somewhere. Maybe I should change my job. We should probably go to a different church. Like, you know, you're acting as if you need to seek out opportunities to challenge racism, as opposed to saying racism is guarantee present in every institution and space that I already occupy. Mm. So let me look there and start there. And I think there's this idea of like, okay, if I'm starting there, that means I need to like confront my racist relatives this holiday season. And I need to like bombard them and, you know, and, and shame them or I don't know, like argue with them a lot. <laughs> like what, like, like I just, I don't, I, I am so interested in people doing this for the long haul and I don't find, I don't, maybe there's some debaters amongst your listeners who are like, yep, debating, arguing with loved ones. Yes. Like can't have that enough. I am not one of those people. <laughs> so right, yeah. what encourage people, you hold your boundaries, you help people get curious about what they're saying. And you also look at, the lower hanging fruit in your life of who are the people that are like, yeah, you know what? Like when you ask the question, they responded with like, yeah, I don't know why I said that. Or I don't, I don't know why, like why I think it's okay. That slavery happened if I just wasn't there or I, you know, like, and I think then you start building from there um, as opposed to just whack a moling people like I don't. I just don't think that's how change happens. And I'm hesitant to, to even like bring up. Um, I'm kind of going like a little different direction than what you. No, no, no. Keep it. Keep
2: than it going. what you I love it. me
3: to. But I feel like this word is so like overused, and so I don't want to like introduce this word. But I, I think there is a level of grace that white people need to have with themselves and with other white people in this conversation and what i don't mean is no accountability and you but like i mean is I, uh, my book is filled with stories of people of color and black people especially black women especially who could have said "Mm, too little too late like i'm not like you know where were you two years ago Um, I'm, I'm hurt by like what you have by your lack of caring about my life and my dignity and my humanity up until this like horrible thing needed to happen for you to, to kind of wake up, um, didn't happen time and time again, because there was grace in the exchange in the relationship, because what. What, what I experienced was people that are saying, I have a vision for how I want the world to operate. Mm-hmm. And you being stuck, Jenny, in shame and guilt doesn't actually make me more free. Like it doesn't actually make, like you then be like, you could actually be a partner in this work with me, but, but you're going to be stuck in shame centering yourself yet again
1: yeah.
3: <laughs> in this work as opposed to saying, yep, I am giving you Jenny, what you do not deserve, but like, let's build a better world together. I do deserve a better world. And so you are not getting what you deserve. Maybe you actually deserve hundred years of collective oppression. Maybe you actually, you know, you deserve all of these ripples of the way that racism plays out to 2022. Um, but I didn't receive that. And so, I think a lot of white people, when they start having their like, aha, oh my God, like, like racism is everywhere. They don't extend that same grace to the people that they're interacting with now. You know, they're like, well, you're just terrible and you're a racist and you're, you know, like, I just don't think people change that way. I mean, that's like a core of humanity. Like no one really has lasting sustainable change by being shamed into understanding or, you know, into action. And so I think a lot of what white people think they need to do is shame their relatives or shame their colleagues or, and I think it is, you, how do you figure out ways to say I up until like a year ago or five years ago or what or yesterday I was drinking from the same Kool-Aid that you were. And so what are things that I need to do to lay the groundwork of opening up dialogue, challenging the white noise I'm hearing, yeah. providing on-ramps for you, um, holding true to my values and my beliefs and not letting lines that I have declared be crossed. But um, but but I think just disregarding people's ability to change is just something that I'm not yeah i'm not interested in yeah um i know that i know how people are like like but it's not through beating people over with stats and calling them names um it's saying this is how i see the world it's such a it's such a more beautiful way to live like yeah and, and i talk about this a lot too like when you are living as a white person not pursuing anti-racism you are not living out of a value of you're not living from a place of human like you are still up in supremacy and that ultimately like like i think there's this belief that like this is like charity work for white people Mm. like oh you're so you have such a soft heart that you would care about this issue and it's like do you think that white supremacy at some point is not like it's already impacting mm-hmm. our society already infesting so many areas we live to white christian nationalism it's connected to like access to guns and who it you know who is being protected under uh with different like gun thing who 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 are the like perpetrators of all of these violent violent acts you have january 6th you have all these like democracy like all these things that this is not just going to come for people of color white supremacy ultimately like cannot sustain itself and it will turn on itself to survive and so um i think i i There was like, if you could only play like two seconds of this whole podcast, (laughs) I think that is what I would really want people, white people, especially to understand, like, this is not charity work. This is survival for all of humans. And, and you have to, you have to have that shift. Otherwise you're not going to stay in this work because this work is lonely and it's hard and it's frustrating. And, um, but, but, but if you, yeah, if you have the, if you have the mindset that it's optional or that it's a bonus, like you're, you're just, you're not, I don't think you're going to stay in it. So you have to, you have to get to that understanding that this is what fights racism is better for white people as well.
2: This is good. This is good. Um, Cause I, 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 I would agree. I mean, I think a lot of folks have talked about that in, in, primarily like tim wise has talked about just how you know like Mm. white supremacy hurts white people um and you can look at that you know throughout history so let me ask you this then so where we're at right now um in terms of change right you think about Mm. somebody coming through an experience like yourself and saying oh my gosh i need to i need to I need to do something about this um mm-hmm. how, where do how do you find that and, and and even just trying to think about where we're at I mean I think about the 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 sources of disinformation are out there and it's like I tell all my students mm-hmm. I'm like Facebook Instagram meta any of them Twitter they they don't have a a priority to change really much because all of that stuff, that content, drives their profits up, right? I mean, there's there's no right. there's no incentive for them to stop disinformation or stop "quote unquote" fake news. How do white folks have those conversations, especially at a time where there's heightened conspiracy theories, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, no, Nancy Pelosi's husband wasn't attacked. That was his gay lover. No, January 6th was a peaceful rally. What you saw on TV were paid actors. No, Joe Biden isn't real. He died five years ago. That's a paid actor. I mean, there's some crazy things out there. At what point do we say... Gosh, dogs! Y'all are lost to the wind, or do we? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm curious because it seems like we're 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 right at an mm-hmm. edge um, as mm-hmm. a society. Um, yeah. So I'd be curious your 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 thoughts on that. Let me let me start with that one.
3: Yeah, well, and I know your last question. You know, we're on the heels of a midterm election, 2016. I think. You know, I mentioned kind of like Trayvon Martin's murder was a huge like event for so many white Americans in particular and I think you know 2016 was that on steroids where so many I mean I was that I was surprised I was I was shocked that Trump won like I could not believe that he won um and I remember, I remember talking to friends after that election, and that was the first time I'd heard the term or that we're living in a post-truth era. Mm-hmm. And that, like, really, re- like that, like, really helped me understand what we, what was at stake here. That that objectivity, <laughs> like fact, was not just a given anymore. Yeah. that anything could be challenged, and and it that's terrifying. Like that is like terrifying because um, people are, to your point, like people are so much more susceptible to just trusting anything they read or, you know, like just being, yeah, you're just, you're so much more moldable in that situation for really scary, terrifying rhetoric and ideology. Um, And it's pervasive. It is, it is so pervasive um i think what i would say to people i mean this is an this is not going away this is ongoing i think so to back up the word sankofa which is the name of the trip that i went on Mm -hmm. it's um it, it it means looking back in order to move forward and i think what would be helpful for so many people um, and I was not a history major, although I kind of looking back, wish I, wish I had been, but I think it is so important for people to, through a racialized lens, look back at history in order to understand where we are today and to better understand where we are going and how that applies to like, cause, cause even the, the, the like headlines that you just grabbed. So, um, line to all of those Mm -hmm. there's a through line of um, someone has something to gain by you not believing the actual news story and that is not invented in 2020 that was not invented in 2016 like we have seen manipulation of news and coverage of things and that's literally what propaganda is and so Start understanding history and saying this is what we've been capable of. So why can't I believe that Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked? Like we've had assassination attempts before. We've had, you know, we've had assassinations before. Um I I think it just I think it helps you, it helps you see like for how we actually operate as people mm-hmm. and that don't feel like you, cause what I, what I think is a theme in all of those things, it's like a, it's like, Oh wait, look over here. <laughs> it's, you know, it's this like deflection tactic. And I think when you start asking the question, who wins by me believing this narrative, like who wins and just start, start there's, um, the question that I come back to a lot in my book that I learned from Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, and it's just the question on whose terms. Hmm. And and I think that is such an important like, um, it's such an easy like check to say like on and and obviously it's like a little bit different in the like you know Nancy Pelosi's husband being attacked, but like, but it is kind of like everything like that we're talking about like there's subjectivity because we're talking about human interactions. But like who who gets something more out of the spin of the story? Versus like what versus like another another spin. And I think just when you start viewing it that way, you can start seeing that these things are not just objective, that they have a slant to them, that there is a there is a mission to, a, to erode trust. There is um There is a mission to, to, um, yeah, to try to spread disinformation, distrust, white supremacy. I mean, like all these other things, Um, but there is an objective that people have in spreading misinformation. It's not that they're just misinformed, right? Like there is an objective. And so I think we sometimes need to take a look back so that we can widen out and see that there's a bigger story happening and i think you need you need to understand history in order to understand really like where we are today and so i think it's less about reading what's happening in 2022 when it's saying let's like i don't know let's go back to some themes throughout our history and 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 that help us help us get to where we are today and i just to add to that like also where we are today Uh, feels original. It feels new. It feels like the first time that this type of, like, you know, mass distrust in government or ba- mass distrust in news has happened. But, like, if you look back, this is not the first time that, like, misinformation and distrust has tried to be spread. So, just how do we look at how it's been fought in the past? How do we fired for how to challenge it today? But I think coming back to that question on whose terms um, just helps you. It, it helps you get a little bit more critical in your thinking of of what's actually happening, as opposed to just like being spoon fed these messages and these stories. And um, yeah, but it's it's wild. Like it is, we are living in. In, in really scary times, um, to your point. Like, the these companies do not have, they have, we are in a capitalistic society. These companies are making money, so they don't actually really care if um, people are hurt in the process.
2: Well, this is, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, and that's why I was like, okay, this is a timely book, and I appreciate that, you know, even in White Noise, you talk about it. let me pull that back up here real quick. Um, cause I also want to ask like some of the things that you were doing with your own sons as well. Oh, where did I put mm. that? I just had that. Oh my gosh. Where did I just put that? Sorry. <laughs> no, it's um, fine. Because I think that where we're at right now is there are a lot of white folks who feel like I, I can't do this. This is overwhelming. Um, yeah. you talk about that in white noise, like it's, it's, it, it is, it's, it's pushing past some aspects of fear. Um, mm. and, and what, you know, and what, and what that, and what that means, I, you know, I love your chapter everywhere is a crime scene, chapter seven. Mm-hmm. Um, oh man, I'm lost. I lo- I thought I had this thing locked in. You're but, fine. You,
3: you take your time.
2: But, um, yeah, no, I wanted to, I wanted to specifically a- address that, but let me see. I thought I had this, I have, this, I have all these dog ears and what I needed to do is put, <laughs> actually put them, some things on 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 there but um I i'm reading
3: it, along with you like that that will help <laughs>
2: yes yeah yeah no 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 absolutely absolutely and I mean, like maybe I,
3: I can read his mind
2: <laughs> well no i mean cause well i mean i'll start with like chapter 14 i mean you you know you said wimpy white boys and you give the you know the quote from bell hooks you know the late great uh bell hooks mm. you know that we don't really live in a culture that loves boys or loves children we don't encourage boys to be whole um and I think that's true. I mean, I think that is is. I'll speak as a as, as a male. Somebody identifies as a male that you're not allowed outside of rage and brutal violence. Like you're not allowed very many other emotions, and then to act on those emotions, right? Um, and that's encouraged and reinforced throughout your life and in in work go to church uh you go to Mm. the gym all those things are reinforced Mm. um and you're also given you know things like okay this is what a man's supposed to be this is what this is this so i think about Mm. your sons and i think about you know you raising them what are some of the ways that you're helping them from keeping them from becoming radicalized right i mean let's people talk about all people getting radicalized to isis and stuff like no we got domestic terrorists that are Right here, there's over 800 yeah. white supremacist groups just right outside the Chicago city limits uh, that are in, and that are growing. Uh, and so yeah. how does one do that so that they don't get into a college mm-hmm. classroom and they're already pushing back on any professor that talks anything near critical race theory? Because I don't think most people know even what they're talking about when they're like, oh no, on no, critical no. race theory. I'm like, dude, you don't even know one thinker from that whole field yeah
3: oh my gosh i mean i i i I think it is i think there is you have to have um you have to if you are raising white white children that identify as male which both mine currently do it starts from the beginning right and so you are constantly and 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 especially i would say so i wrote this originally my whole book my original title title for the whole book was "Wimpy white boys. I got the idea okay. for the book the idea for the book, um, around the time of the Kavanaugh like nomination. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah. um, the church that I was working at had lead pastor founding pastor was, um, caught in a, you know, like po- both power abuse and like sexual harassment. I mean, that's the like coded language you know, more, yeah, many, many women came forward saying, um, that there were levels of varying degrees of inappropriate behavior. Um, Trump had just been elected. Like, you know, I'm just like, Oh, and I just, I have two white boys that are under the age of three at this point. And I'm just like, or under the age of four. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Um, and then, you know, doing, even doing research for this book, finding out that you know kids as young boys as young as like 11 that's like when they're starting to be recruited it's not when they're like 16 it's when they are like 10 and 11 years old that they are started kind of this slow like like these groups are playing a little bit of like they're playing like they're strategic in how they are bringing these kids along yeah um so i have to be strategic (laughs) i have to be strategic as a white mom raising these white kids and i um for for so long um i mean i yeah i mean i'm going along ways that we basically get them comfortable with being the only one. Because so that's like, that's not going to be their experience. Like, you know, the school that they're in, um, they, they are like some of the only white kids in their class. Um, but when, when we take them to like team sports, it's like a bunch of white kids and so I'm trying to get them comfortable with standing apart from their peers when it relates to issues of like racism um and trying to give them that accurate history like we i mean my kids they they know about slavery and they know about um know about not just martin luther king's dream but that he was killed for that dream right i mean that's kind of like the kid language we're using with them but 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 part of what i'm trying to do is giving them yeah the handles to have a foundation to have like a bank of information so that when disinformation comes their way they're not like an empty vessel being able to be filled up with that disinformation they have something to challenge it um and another thing is giving them real opportunities to make change. And that can be like super small. Like we've done several like lemonade stands and we picked out organizations that we wanted to like give the money to. So much of what these groups are preying on is kids wanting to be taken seriously and wanting to give them a sense of purpose. There are so many like studies that talked about in Germany when the Nazis were recruiting like 14 year old um kids to join the Nazi party. So many of them didn't even really like they weren't even really like believing what Nazis were believing. They just love feeling taken seriously yeah. and like part of something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I want to create opportunities for my kids to have to be taken seriously.
1: Yeah.
3: That like you have a part to play in this world. Your voice matters. And you are i want how do we how do we become bigger than just like our little family or you know like the what like how do we expand um who you belong to yeah and i think so much of the training that i'm doing now with these kids is i want them first and foremost to learn how to belong to themselves and you know my um almost 6 year olds. we took him back to school shopping and he picked out these like shoes that are so, I mean, not like unisex, like they are purple and sparkly. <laughs> well, they're Vans, like they're, they're cool skater shoes. But in that moment, I remember being like, and in my mind, I was like, Jenny, this is like, this is like a moment where you are showing your son that he can either trust himself and you're going to stand by him mm. in that Or you're going to say, no, honey, that's for, only for girls. And that, that's such a small example.
1: Yeah. But I,
3: I, that's like what my book is filled with. It's like, these are these like everyday moments. Um, But, but it's, what has been so interesting about that is I am seeing the indoctrination into um, the patriarchy and, and, and even just gender. With my kindergartner, he has already talked about how so many of the kids on his bus are like, Why are you wearing girl shoes? Yeah. That is like, that is a very consistent conversation. And his response is, and he came up with this on his own. He's like, Such thing as boy shoes or girl shoes. These are just shoes. <laughs> and just like giving him little moments of, I can trust myself. I can, um, I can go against the grain. Yeah. Like, I think that's what it is. Like there is the, the the whole title of that chapter, Wimpy White Boys, is is what Milo was called by a nurse right after he was born in the hospital. He was a preemie, technically. I mean, he was born 36 weeks and five days. So that's technically under the 37 mm-hmm, kind of full mm-hmm, gestational mm-hmm. mark. And so they had to do a few more tests for him as a preemie. And one of the tests the nurse is giving him, I think she was, like, poking him or drawing. I think she was just giving, yeah, poking, doing, like, a uh, skin poke to get some blood. And he is screaming. She's like, oh, we've got another wimpy white boy. And I was like, what?
1: Right. <laughs> say what, the, what? say it again.
3: And she was like, yeah, I don't know what it is, but, like, all the, like, survival rates. Oh, she didn't say this. She said, I don't know what it is, but, like the white boys that I have to do this test to always have like a, uh, a bigger reaction than any of the girl babies and any of the other boys of color. And so I started looking into this, and this is actually like medical kind of slang that there is that it is recorded that the survival rate for white boys that are born premature is slightly less than white girls and slightly less, or than all girls and slightly less than boys of color.
1: Interesting.
3: So there becomes this like, oh, well we can't, we have to like overcompensate for the white creamies that are born. We have to provide them extra attention and extra coddling and extra like, you know, attention. Like they're really need our coddling is kind of what is seen in the hospital to, to kind of boost that survival rate. And so the the question that I kind of ask in that chapter and in the book is like, when does that coddling
1: end? <laughs> when, oh,
3: wow. when does it end that like, no, like that's not, that wasn't, wasn't okay. Or like, yeah, you lost. <laughs> how How does that make you feel? Let's deal with those feelings. And then let's like, um, let's face some hard mm. things so that you actually have real grit and resistance and that you can access, this is, I mean, I think what bell hooks is talking about, then you can access like the wholeness of being a human mm-hmm. as opposed to, Oh, it's okay, baby. Like, you're right. You should have won that thing. And yeah, you sh- yeah. Like you are the smartest and you are the best and you know, like all this coddling that we do for these kids that turns them into men who when they're not or win or able to dominate they have no other like things to draw from and so this like isn't counseling already like Mm. you know learning deeply about his emotions okay okay Um, and i say that i mean that and that is like privileged thing that we're able to afford that and able to do that but that's a lot of our like work is like how do we how do we give language to how you feel because if you can talk about if you can get connected to how you feel the feelings don't overwhelm you and overtake you and also and this is a glennon doyle quote i think but like feelings are for feeling and like you have access to all of them and yeah. we're not going to say that some feelings are only for girls and some are only for boys. So I think that to the point of, you know, even this is like a slightly different use of intersectional intersectionality than way the way it's normally talked about. But like, I think you are I'm raising not just kids and I'm not just raising boys. I am raising white boys. Mm-hmm. And so that's taking like different. Slightly, it's all under the same umbrella, um, but I have to be, be addressing both yeah. both of those isms that they could that they could go to they can go to sexism if they want. They can go to racism if they want. So how am I helping them to belong to themselves first, so that when these groups come along, they're like, no, like I see I see through you. And I'm gonna rebel against my mom in a different way. <laughs> like I'm <laughs> <Right>. gonna, <laughs> like this right. isn't the way that I'm gonna rebel from from my family or from you know from my roots. Like this is this is ordinary and everyday how I see the world. This isn't like movable. This isn't um. This is core to like who I am. Yeah. And, but it, it, yeah, I mean, I I have a whole, I have several chapters. I've one in particular that really kind of goes as goes like age by age and kind of how you start these conversations in your home. And um, and really, I think trying to push back at this idea that like kids are so innocent
1: yeah.
3: to this and we don't yeah. want to we don't want to rob them of their innocence. Like not again, not in the same thing. But my five year old was like bullied for wearing girl shoes. Right. Girl shoes.
1: Yeah, right. Like right, yeah. what
3: innocence are, you know, like, like our, um. George Floyd had a six-year-old daughter. Her innocence was not maintained when her father was killed. Like, I just, I think this, I think this like obsession with like, oh, our kids need to be like protected. Or, I mean, yeah, that, that goes back to the coddling. That's like, when are you going to realize that the, the intent to protect our white kids is yeah. killing them and killing everybody. So you know just light light stuff.
2: No, <laughs> well, I read. think that's I think that is no, absolutely and I think that's a, a big thing. I I'm, I I'm, that's why I wanted to ask you that question because I think I have encountered so many white men that ap- have the appearance right of power, they have the money, they have the title, but are the fragilest things. I mean, I got a colleague right now who's been, you know, he was teaching finally You know, he's forced to retire like he's been teaching and he's just Mm. been allowed to do whatever he wants for three and a half decades. And once I took over as department chair, then it was just like, oh, you know, you know, there's that whole dynamic, right, of uh, a white person, you know, being, you know, now having to answer to a black person. Yeah. But then just the fragility that that man has. And I'm just like. I, I, you know, I, I always, I always kid around, I'm just like, man, if white men had to go through even an ounce of what we as black folks have to go, there'd be mass shootings every day. Cause it's like, you get one, one white guy that doesn't like the way somebody looked at him, you know, you can go all the way back to Columbine. Uh, and even before that, it's just like, now I got to go kill everybody who crossed me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh gosh. So.
3: Yeah. It's, it's not about like, Oh, you don't have good coping. I mean, it's not, it's still, right. yeah, it's, it's not, it's, um, it's beyond that. It is, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's all the things that we're talking about, but, but, um, how breakable are you? Like how, like how, how quick is your whole world going to collapse? Because it's never been challenged. Right. Exactly. And so, and your place in that, in that world has never been challenged. Right. And so, Like, love, like the conversations that I have with my kids about history, about anti-racism, those conversations are rich. Like, that, it, I mean, it is, um, and it's so exciting because it's starting, like, they're starting to initiate things. Like, like it's not just me being like, it's it starting to become more of a conversation as opposed to when it started with them when they were little, where it was like trying to like raise different values with them or, or help them, you know, understand history more. Like, yeah, even like this week, like my oldest son brought home a book, like a graphic, um, like a graphic novel about slavery and about, um, about slavery and about the underground railroad. And like, he want, he saw that book in the library, sought it out, read it on its own. Like that's what we're going for. We are going for kids who don't need your hand holding them through these things all the time, but who start who start taking ownership of wanting to understand history, of of get, going deeper into these subjects. Um, I mean, that I just, I, I, I someone was I th- in the one conversation I had with someone, they were asking something about like. How can I be sure that this is going to work? And it's like, well, I, I'm not like, I, I I'm, you know, how does any parent sure that the values and the way that they see <laughs> right. the world is going right. to, is going to take root in their kids. But I am starting to see the fruit of it. Yeah. And that is really exciting. And it's starting with an eight year old. Yeah. It's starting with my yeah. almost six year old who yesterday we had like, he just asked me, I'm sure it was prompted by something and I can't remember what it was, but just asked me about like, mom, like like, what does racism do again? You know, just like, and then I had like a 40 second conversation about it. Like, it doesn't need to be uh, huge seminars or sweeping, like these things. And I would say, you know, a lot of my friends of color, like these conversations about culture and about color and about race and racism, like that is like, everyday life yeah and that's what i'm trying to do for my white kids yeah is showing them you know having the having the yeah having the thread go all over there's almost like no memory no conversation that, in some way like seeing the world through a racialized lens like that it you know it's immune from like I, i want it to be so wholly absorbed but um And and I I know I would feel this way if I knew even if they weren't possibly being radicalized by the age of eleven. Like that's not like I'm not just like afraid for that like radicalization. I'm also I don't want them to be white moderates.
1: Yeah. I want them to be people
3: that like appear I want them to be (laughs) like abolitionists. I want them to be Traitors to their race, traitors to the patriarchy. <laughs> like, that yeah. is what I'm going for. I am not just going for, oh, they'll have friends in their class that are black and they'll be nice to them.
2: Right, right. Ooh, going we... for
3: their friends of color are safer, are, they're, they're more emotional, like, they're able to be, like, it, it's a... Uh, vision beyond my kids I mean I think that's that's ultimately what I'm saying is it's a vision for I brought these kids into the world (laughs) like how how do I make sure that the, the vision for humanity didn't get chucked to the side because now I'm just obsessed with my kids getting ahead being successful being the best having it all being on top being cuddled being
2: comfortable being safe right like, right well i i i'm i'm happy to hear that because i think there's been so much there's been generation after generation that has had just the, just the opposite that's again an interesting um stat on what you were talking about with the you know the calling and preemies and, and 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 whatnot yeah um Wow, uh, folks, the book is doing nothing is no longer an option. One woman's journey into everyday racism. I've been talking with Jenny. No, anti anti-racism. Anti-racism, and, and, <laughs> anti racism. Anti racism. Anti everyday anti racism. Um, uh, i have been talking with Jenny Booth Potter. Um, Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time. I um want to be respectful of time. I could talk with you a lot longer, which means we we'll just have to get uh get you back on the show. Uh, In the interim, where can folks find you? Where, you know, when they want to bring you out and uh, give you some grants and, uh, you know, send you some some Venmo and all that good stuff.
3: Oh, that's kind. Uh, The easiest places that I hang out online are my website, which is just JennyBoothPotter.com. And then I'm on on Instagram at Jenny, the letter B, Potter. Okay.
2: Cool. And as always, I'll put these in the show notes at com. Go to Profane Faith, click on that, and there's a whole just slither of uh, of links there. Ginny, uh, thanks again so much for taking the time out today and sharing your passion, folks. Get the book; it's uh it it's twenty chapters, but each chapter reads very quickly, and and it gets to some really good points quickly. Um, Austin Channing Brown does the does the forward. Um, she's been on the show, of course, as well, and a, and a friend as as well. So, um, thank you for what you're doing, and 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 keep it up in this craziness of time that we're living in
3: yeah thank you so much i really appreciate the conversation and i feel the same way i'm like so what are you doing after should we do (laughs) what other questions you got
1: yeah no no, i really appreciate
3: i really appreciate the conversation so thanks again Daniel.
0: The Chapel Probation Podcast takes a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities, focusing initially on Azusa Pacific University, where I taught English for 15 years. I'm Scott Okamoto, and I'm writing a book about how I deconstructed from faith completely while at APU. This podcast, though, is my tribute to the students and other faculty who survived evangelical higher education. They faced ridiculous racism, sexism, anti-LGBTQ hatred, and all manner of bigotry. From the heartless evils of the prosperity gospel to the destructive pseudo-theology of purity culture, the stories will break your heart, but they will also inspire. These people faced bigotry and fought back. In a weird, kind of sick way, we went through some but we formed identities and we formed communities through it all. I hope you will join us.